0: Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center. This is CM Alexander with the news. On the community calendar, Dairy is welcoming touring orator Stephen Spignessi, an acclaimed author and expert on Stephen King. Can you imagine dedicating so much time to one author's work? I wonder what that must feel like, listeners. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And today, joining us as a guest is a writer and author of more than 60 books, He is a retired practitioner-in-residence from the University of New Haven. He is considered an authority on Stephen King, even appearing in the A&E biography of Stephen King. His sixth book about King is Stephen King, American Master. Please welcome to the show Stephen Spignessi. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for making the time to be here with us.
2: My pleasure.
1: So, CM, are you ready to to kick things off? I know uh, if you've listened to any of our interviews before, uh, CM has a very important job at the very top of all of our interviews.
0: My first question is about your introduction to Stephen King's work. What was your very first experience with Stephen King?
2: Sure. Uh, It was The Shining. Uh, It was 1977. I had just gotten married. I had somehow missed Carrie and the Carrie movie. And on our honeymoon, I just had picked up the paperback of The Shining, and I read it in like one reclining, I'll say. I was on the couch laying down reading it, and it just absolutely blew me away. And what struck me most was that this is not normal, average, pop kind of horror. This was literature, and of course, now we all kind of accept that *The Shining* is King's one of King's most literary works. So that just spurred me. I had to find everything he had written, and I took it, and it went from there. Um, I was working on a book about the Andy Griffith Show at the time, called *Mayberry, My Hometown*. Big fan. Uh, Opie, Andy, Aunt B, you know the whole crew—and yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I talked to my publisher. And I said, you know, I'm considering, you know, what would you think of a Stephen King book? And it was years before it actually came into fruition, but my next book for them was the uh, Stephen King Encyclopedia. So the launching was the reading of The Shining. Wow, That's that... outstanding.
0: <laughs> in our podcast, we like to talk about what we call Stephen King moments that gets stuck in your mind and just does something to you. Is there one, if you could only pick one, that would be your top Stephen King moment?
2: Oh, wow. One. <laughs> yeah, one moment. I'm I'm going to actually go out on, on a limb and say, no, I can't nail it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't nail it down to one. Um, I've been reading and studying his stuff for so many years, and so many things, so many scenes, so many moments, so many turns of phrase have simply just become just important and iconic to me. I mean, there, there's a there's a um, a quote from the regulators about sprinklers. <laughs> that it just really moved me in terms of the beauty of its language. King's poetry moves me and stays with me. Paranoid, Dark Man, Harrison State Park. The, then there are scenes, specific scenes. The Danny Glick at the window scene in Salem's Lot, on through mm-hmm. even the story, The Thing at the Bottom of the Well, which was King's People, Places, and Things story, which was the very, very first use. Of it was the kernel, as in K E R N E L, kernel image of Pennywise. Of it, this little kid is a real creep and he pulls wings off flies. And he ends up one day he hears a voice from the bottom of the well come on down, we'll have great fun. And he's found later with his arms and legs pulled off. And it was clearly (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah, and he wrote that, you know, when he was a teenager, because People, Places, and Things was published when he was a kid. Him and Chris Chesley wrote one-page horror sci-fi short stories. The disgusting dedication storyline. Oh,
1: yeah, dedication, (laughs) Um, man.
2: A a, a more recent example. I loved his one-act play, Thin Scenery, that appeared in the literary journal Plowshares last summer. And then, of course, you know, the hobbling scene. The whole first edition of The Gunslinger. The, not the rewrite. The, mm-hmm. the original five short stories read in toto, just really <laughs> blew me away. I absolutely love it. The suicide ending of Last Drung. his nonfiction essay, Guns, that's very, very powerful. In Bizarre Bad Dreams, there's a short story I absolutely adore. It's called Afterlife. And I'm actually... Thinking about adapting, writing a script based on that story. So King's work across the board fiction, nonfiction, theatrical stuff, poetry, recipes. have been with me for so long and I I I'm just such a huge fan that it's almost impossible. It's like going to Dr. PhD of English literature, uh, you know, in, in in England and saying, "What's your favorite Shakespeare play?" <laughs> and then And then he spends a week talking about how you can't ask that question, and here's (laughs) why. (laughs) I cannot single out a particular moment. I can single out The Shining as my introduction to King, and I can also kind of single out works like that have very, very powerfully moved me over the years, particularly recently, Elevation. Elevation was really kind of like a novella. 25,000, 28,000 words, whatever it was, and it was published as a small hardcover, which is amazing, because novellas are almost never published singularly, but when it's king, there is no, you know, traditional. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, Elevation, it, it's a Christ allegory. I mean, the main character basically is a a metaphor, a symbol for the Christ legend, including Ascension elevation themes of the body. And I just said, you know, this is clearly obvious of the the spiritual growth in King's work in recent years. So I've been kind of like watching his focus. And, you know, in 1987, when it came out, he said, this is it. This is my swan song for writing about monsters. And, of course, as Pennywise, they all made an appearance, right? Mummy, uh, Frankenstein, uh, Wolfman. And he said, "I'm now going to focus on the monsters within." And then we have works like *Dark Half*, which is this—the this, writer's duality. The brain is literally split, and there was a physical explanation for it in the book. But the notion of, of, a, of a writer having this duality is just evidence that you know King's work is beyond just "ooh, ooh, ooh I'm going to get scared." You know, no, 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 no. This guy is writing. Great American literature that is going to be read, enjoyed, studied in 50 years, 100 years, exactly the way Dickens and Poe and Lovecraft and Mary Shelley are today. One of the big things I always kind of talk about when I do lectures on, on my books and King is that let's not take him for granted and let's not take Paul McCartney for granted and let's not take the work of truly iconic artists for granted because we're alive when they're continuing to produce. And um, one example I always refer to is is Rogers and Hammerstein. You know, 1939 they released Oklahoma. There were people who stood in line to get tickets and heard oh Oklahoma blah, blah, you know, for the first time. And now it's this unimaginably important and popular Broadway show. And yet, our grandparents possibly saw it live mm-hmm. as a new work. And so that kind of perception is very important to me. So that's part of the reason why I've done, why I did American Master, which, <laughs> believe it or not, is 17 years since my last King book. So I, I just consider them important enough to warrant that kind of commitment and study. I think you're
1: you're absolutely right. And I, I love that that's something you, you talk about. We've had these conversations with with guests, or uh, when CM and I have been interviewed by other sources, having conversations about, for instance, Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery isn't about uh, a graveyard where that brings things back to life. It's about the overwhelming power of grief and mm. and loss, and and just like how how far your heart can break is like the source of that book. And it's so so it's so great knowing somebody like you is out there writing about these things so that people who miss these connections their first time around can can discover them. So but before we get back to King stuff, I just want to ask you you have published more than 60 books which is wild when did you know that writing was the thing you wanted to do with your
2: life? When I was nine It was right after my dad had passed away, and I was only nine. He was only 36. In fact, I've written a screenplay called Blatchley Avenue, which is being shown now, and it's about the last two months of his life. He got sick on the 4th of July and died the day before Labor Day. That was it, two months. Yeah, oh, it was awful. But for some reason, it spurred me, and I took out my uh, loose-leaf notebook, notebook paper, and a blue Bic pen. And I just wrote a short story. And it was generously and kindly could be called a a spy parody or satire. And, And my mother... God, God rest her soul. She just passed last year. She was my at ninety. She was my first editor, <laughs> and she read. Oh yeah, she she was. She read voraciously. Belonged to the book of the month club. Let me read anything. I mean, I read Peyton Place when I was you know eight years old. Um, let me read anything. <laughs> yep, and. That is wild, (laughs) that young to read that. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. The biography of um, one of the astronauts, she let me read. And anything that came in the Book of the Month Club, after she read it, if I wanted to, she'd let me. Um, And so she read my spy story. And she was... (laughs) It's funny now, but she said, you know, it it boiled down to maybe you should kind of like, you know, get a little older before you try your hand at trenchant satire. (laughs) 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 And I said, oh, okay. And so I just continued writing stuff that is lost to this day. You know, in the early 70s, I started taking it very seriously. And um, in my late teens, early 20s and started writing I I, I actually wrote a book about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings which Ballantyne very kindly said you know we own that so (laughs) (laughs) you really you can't really write a book about our characters and our books without our permission and we're not licensing anything at the moment but it was good experience you know (laughs) Um, And so then I just continued from there until I sold my first book in 1984, the Mayberry book, and that didn't come out until 1987. But by then, I had started working on the uh, King Encyclopedia, my Stephen King Encyclopedia, and that took five years of research and reading just to be able to write, and that came out in '90. Uh, 850,000 words, eight and a half by 11 pages. It's massive, absolutely massive. It's a huge doorstop. It really is. Uh, 18,000 A to Z entries of every person, place, and thing in King's work through 1990. Complete Castle Rock Index, to which I was a contributor at the time. Thirty interviews with directors and writers. I interviewed Richard Matheson. I interviewed. I have the only interview with Dave King, Steve's, Steve's brother, and uh, he sent me a bunch of stuff from King's childhood. And it was I've been told the last book that King officially sanctioned. And when I was working on that, I talked to my, while well, my agent talked to on my behalf. Elaine Coster, who was King's editor at Penguin. And I, had, I said, you know, here's the, the thing. I'm doing all this research. I have mountains of, of research materials. Let's spin it off into a quiz book. And she went for it. She said, yeah, it's a good idea. And the encyclopedia was still, you know, two years away from being published or whatever. So then I did the quiz book. And from there, I did a second quiz book, which uh, as a sequel and then Lost Work of Stephen King, The Essential Stephen King, and then Stephen King, American Master. And while I'm doing all this, I also got a job. or Now, I wasn't an employee, but I was a freelance worker for John Wiley and Son. You know the Four Dummies books? Yeah. Yeah, the black, yellow, and gold cover and so forth. Uh, you know, Microsoft Word for Dummies and so what. I've written four of them. What? And, yeah, I've <laughs> written four Dummies books, and they are... Brutal. And I, I, always, I always tell students, you know, that was a trial by fire in terms of being able to do intensive research, very, very quick assimilation and very rapid writing because you get six months to write a dummy's book and they're written to template and you have to turn in a chapter a week and then you get it back two weeks later with notes. So you're editing, researching, and writing all at the same time. And the last one I did for them was in 2012 for the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. I did Titanic for dummies, and actually taught a course on it at University of New Haven. And what was real fun, and and, uh, I talk about it all the time as being one of those really rare moments in academia. The course I taught was the literature and history of the Titanic, and my book was the course text <laughs> and the the school paid for them nice the unh bought 25 copies of my book the size of the class and shipped them to me and i handed them out my students did not have to pay for them and at the very end of the course i signed them for for them and and the course was over and it was great great fun you know and that's uh,
1: amazing
2: yeah, and so I was doing the Dummies books, and I did four or five books about the presidents, and books about the founding fathers, and I did UF, two UFO books, and I did a cookbook uh, called about the Beatles called "She Came in Through the Kitchen Window," which is <laughs> <laughs> that's true, true. It, it's it's uh, recipes based on song titles of the Beatles so there's you know I want to hold your ham <laughs> I love that oh yeah it was all- the recipes were real though and oh, you know goodness. what's interesting <laughs> is that a lot of the recipes came from my Italian mother and many of my Italian aunts and grandparent and traditional recipes that have been handed down in the family. So the book actually turned into this really cool Italian, a lot of Italian recipes cookbook. You know, so I did four books about the Beatles. It's just been, and you know what's interesting? You ask how how could that happen? You know, I did sixty books in, we'll say, you know, thirty years. That's like two a year. And the way I did it is that I'm fortunate. And then I was able to write two books a year. So I was willing to take short contracts because, you know, back then when I was writing for a living, it was, you know, you get half on signing the contract, half of the advance, and then the other half on acceptance. So I was constantly churning contracts, either starting a book or finishing one so that the money kept coming in. And after a while, and I tell my writing students this, and they can't believe it because of the difficulty the way publishing is today. I mean, it's just, you know, 30% were laid off during the pandemic. And I don't know if they're going to get rehired, frankly. But in any case, back then, half of my book, well, 60, 65 titles, I would say 30 of them were offered to me because I had developed a track record for turning stuff out that was as close to perfect as I could make them and doing well with sales. There's like 25 or 30 titles on my bibliography on my website that I never thought of. The publishers, you know, they have idea meetings and very often, you know, they get in a room every two weeks and say, so what do you think? They say, oh, we should do a book about Robin Williams. And the editors, acquisition editors, would be there, and they'd say, "Well, does anybody have an author who has pitched them a book about Robin Williams?" No hands, of course. And then one of them to say, "Well, I'm working with Spignesi, and he just did a book on blah blah. I'm sure he could handle it. Okay, offer it to him." And that's how half of my books came into being because between us and our radio listeners. I said yes to everything. <laughs> <laughs> we do the I same thing. Mor- I get it. No, I had a mortgage. <laughs> I had to buy my own health insurance. And when you work for yourself, you pay double social security tax because you're both the employer and employee. So I was constantly on the lookout for, for new contracts. And then it started fading. Publishing started going through a tightening the way the housing industry, around 04, 05, 06, 07. So I contacted the um, chair of the English department at my alma mater, UNH. I said, I'm available, and, and he brought me on that semester, and I ended up teaching full-time for 10 years and still writing, but only one book a year because I, I couldn't do both. And I was a practitioner, so I had, a, I had 21 credits a year to teach. So I was busy and um, and so that's how my bibliography came into being and now i'm I'm retired from teaching. I'm older now, so I'm more comfortable doing like one major book a year and maybe a short book that doesn't require the kind of intensive research and I've turned more to fiction. I have a novel that my co-author Rachel and I are finishing. I have a short story collection coming out in a couple months. So career has kind of evolved as everything changed. Reader interest, publisher interest, life. And so that's why I am where I am now.
1: We've been very fortunate with the, the people we've had on our show with guests. It's so great to meet people who have achieved the level of success they have by just putting their head down and doing the work, making it happen for themselves. It's a really cool message. With all of these topics, all these things, what is it that made you decide that King was going to be a a big focal point for you, starting with that encyclopedia?
2: I ended up ultimately being an English teacher, but in high school and college, I focused on literature, and, and I went to a Catholic high school. And, you know, it's funny, after I got in, I got a scholarship in my first year of freshman English, I would talk to my friends, many of whom were going to, you know, local public high schools. And I'd say, you know, in your English class, what are you reading? What what What's going on? And they said, oh, we're reading 1984 or Of Mice and Men or Animal Farm. And I said, yeah, and what about next week? And mm-hmm. oh, no, that's it. That's it. where <laughs> I went to high school. We were assigned a book a week and in fact, one English course I took in high school, the assignment, it was only one book for the semester, but it was The Lord of the Rings. You know, oh my God. Three, <laughs> <laughs> three huge books, you know. So I've always been a reader. I've always, since I was a kid, been a writer. And King just appeals to everything to, for me. He's an incredible storyteller. He, he's He's an excellent writer, and I often use the analogy, the metaphor of you don't see the words that, you know, when you're reading King, when he's in the zone... And there's some stuff happening. You're like pulled through the pages. It's, a, it's like this symbiotic relationship between uh, him and you. And I actually did an essay about that, that King, you know, not only Spock can mind meld. Um, it, <laughs> that, that was the title, yeah. That's amazing. And it was about how King can connect. And so, obviously, I, I wanted to read everything he published, which I ended up doing. And then um, Lost Work came out because of all the extras that I had been finding doing research for the encyclopedia. And then the Essential Stephen King, which is now, it's in, it's in the archives because I basically I, I ranked King's top 100 works from 1977 through 2000, I think, or 1998, I'm not sure what year. And it was completely subjective. But I did use literary criteria. Plot, characterization, dialogue, tone, which is the same stuff I taught, you know, comp and lit. And, you know, it is a bit elitist to kind of claim this is better than that. But, but, you know, I'm sorry. I really believe that it is all right to say that this is better than this. The rule of law is better than theocracy. A two-room shack is not, is not as good as the Buckingham Palace. I mean, we can't, there are, right? There are comparisons that can be made. The rationale is always, you know, greater good. What serves the greater good? And in terms of King, it was, you know, what what serves his body of work as being examples of true excellence. But now it's 30 years out of date. So there's, and you know what he's Really, <laughs> just in the last ten, years, oh, ten yeah. years. So there's no way of ever updating that, but it was of interest enough to me. He had written so much by then that I said, you know, something. Let me. I would love to write about The Shining, The Dead Zone, The Green Mile, the the novella collections, the short stories, the nonfiction essays. I would love to. I ended up compiling a bibliography of King from which I had to take a hundred pieces as being true examples of his, his excellence. And so I did that. And then I moved on to like, you know, everything else. And 17 years later, one of my publishers said, you know, is it time? And I said, well, you know, Stephen King is 70, whatever now. And he, but he's still churning out one, two books a year. But yeah, I feel I could put together a compendium that looks at his entire career through now. And so that's why I did Stephen King, American Master. And I also have done Robin Williams, American Master. And I am now working on Frank Sinatra, American Master. Ooh, nice. Yeah. So, so it's a hell King of a three. Did, <laughs> and you know something? If I did, if King didn't appeal to me at the level that he does, there's no way I would have been able to have the enthusiasm or the commitment <laughs> to do the books I did because the research alone is just mind boggling. But you know that that's the I've always had kind of like a, a split personality kind of as a writer. You know I, I can do academic level research and come up with real cool. You know how King kills. There's a, there's a <laughs> list in my encyclopedia of all the ways that King killed off characters. It's great. Yeah. You know. And also write in a, can write in an accessible way. So you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love uh, you mentioned the mind meld thing because what struck me when I was a kid reading King, why I just started picking up all of his books, is that for the first time in my life, reading a book sucked me in so fully. That I had to take a break afterwards because I got a little bit like I went through a period of grief after reading the Dark Tower series, what was published up through then, because I wasn't in that world anymore, and I I didn't want to dive into another world because you know it wasn't Roland and everyone, yeah. and I missed them already, and so I just I've never thought of it like Spock, that's such a cool <laughs> way to think about that.
2: That's the secret, isn't it? Creating these universes yeah. that you want to live in, and this is why. This my theory is that the reason technology well first of all technology has made binging TV commonplace my theory is that the reason binging has become a phenomenon that people will commit to rewatching all 15 seasons of ER in a row <laughs> and then and then start over is because of exactly what you brought up, Sam, the idea that this is a universe, a wholly mm-hmm. created, fully created universe with people, characters, who become incredibly real. And it's a gift of the writer if they're able to do that. And this is why some people just fall in love with certain shows. And they just, you know, I I belong to a whole bunch of Facebook TV groups. And the more active are West Wing. Mm -hmm. People will watch the West Wing over and over and over. They will watch ER over and over. Game of Thrones nonstop. They just continue to watch it. In fact, I just did a rewatch of The Good Wife with Julianna Margulies. And I just love that whole universe. And her as the lead character. So, yes, you're right. When you when you nail down a, a particular book or series of books that just kind of, you just, you know, become part of it, it's absolutely irresistible. And, you know, ultimately what we're describing is the power of art. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have, I know people who do this with music. I know people who do this with art. You know, they they just become so immersed. Uh, I met a group uh, recently that it's into um, totally into the work of Dutch 16th century artist Vermeer. Okay, remember the girl like with the pearl of earring? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah that are.
2: that painting. <laughs> yeah, he didn't he didn't do a lot of paintings, but there are groups that that just focus on the minutia, every little, and have huge discussions about color usage and character usage, and who is the girl with the pearl earring? Was it maid, like in the movie, in the book? No. It might have been his daughter, and from my reading, that that seems to be the case, because uh, her visage appears in a couple of other paintings that very similar to Girl with the Pearl Earring. So, yeah, what you're describing is the power of art. And, and I just believe, you know, the more art, the more evolved we become. Mm-hmm. The more exposure to art, regardless, music, painting, reading, uh, the more evolved we become because we're tapping into heartfelt emotions that are universal but we may not have actually considered or experienced before digging this particular book or, or TV show. Yeah.
0: And re-exposure is incredibly important too, because I, I'm i baffled when I meet people who don't reread books that they've already read, because it's how how do you, you get something new out of every reading. Your life has changed. You have different you know concepts of things. They hit you in different ways.
2: Oh, I got the perfect answer for you, Sam. When people say, you're rereading Pet Cemetery? You're rereading the Dark Tower series. You're rereading it. You read it once. And my answer is always, yeah, I heard the White Album once, too. Exactly. <laughs> but I listened exactly. <laughs> <laughs> listen to it. I listen to it constantly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and be, oh, I never thought of it like that. Well, no, of course you haven't. <laughs> okay, I'll
0: try <laughs> because, that next time instead of running away. Yeah, it's because <laughs>
2: books take more time and are harder to re-experience. Mm-hmm. But the difference is is ignorable because, you know, you don't buy an album and listen to it once unless you, of course, absolutely hate it. We have to throw that caveat in there. (laughs) Or you're some
0: sort of monster who just (laughs) buys things and then throws them away after (laughs) one sitting.
1: With all of the the things that you've gathered in your King career, what sort of unique King collectibles or tributes have you seen from the people you've met as you've met more and more King fans, the more research and stuff you've done?
2: Yeah, King fans are, are wild, and a lot of them create collectibles. There are companies that that create you know T-shirts with phrases from King's work on it. You've seen them mm-hmm. tote bags and so forth. But the single most unique collectible, aside from the asbestos fire starter, wait, wait <laughs> what? The, oh yeah there there was there was an edition of fire starter published in asbestos, bound in asbestos. Oh there were two God. copies, what? and a friend of mine who yeah, a friend of mine named Charlie Freed who has passed away. Ah, uh, he owned one of them, and he, when he passed away, he was in negotiations to buy the other one. Wow! But wow. that—that's you know a, a situation unto itself. But yeah, <laughs> it was a fire starter book bound as Vestas. and the other would be uh, thanks to my girlfriend, my girlfriend Valerie Barnes. Um, She has long been a King fan, and and for a while she was a very important collector. She she bought tons of limiteds. In fact, I tell this story, you know, many, several years ago, she sold three of her limited editions that had, of course, appreciated and bought a Kia, a brand new Kia automobile with the money.
0: I am desperate to ask about that because I I read that in your book, Stephen King, American Master, the interview with her, and I have collectibles and I understand doing that to get something that you need a car is very important but it would also break my heart was it hard for her
2: no she was at the point where um, she pretty much had she's got a big signed tab at the King collection too but the King um, collectibles they weren't something that she really said no I have to have I have to own this. Forever. Mm-hmm. Um, one was, I think, she had the stainless steel uh, My Pretty Pony with the digital clock in the cover. Oh, and, yeah, and it was huge <laughs> and expensive, and she didn't have room on her shelf. She lives in an apartment, and and the, her shelf space was running. And she needed a car, sure. so it was, you know, and and a lot of people do consider collectible signed limited slipcase books as investments and so she actually actualized actually actualized yeah good Steve you're you're a writer yeah <laughs> she actually she actually actualized the notion that some king books make wonderful investments and so she just did it and she found a buyer immediately and and you know kind of rescued her from having to take a loan you know so and then she has continued, although now she's branched out and she's reading all kinds of things now. But she made what I consider the single most unique, most unique, that's also bad, most <laughs> unique collectible uh, in the King universe, which is a satin workout jacket, white, and the back has the Rock Bottom Remainders logo with every member in it hand stitched. On the entire back of the jacket and on the front of each jacket, one says Steve and one says Val. And the Steve, she gave to Stephen King in person and uh, he was just delighted with it. And she still has the the one with her name on it. And um, we've never had them appraised. We've ne- They were very costly, as you can imagine, because they were yeah. all hand-stitched. We've never had them appraised. She has no interest in selling the one she owns. But to me, that kind of defines, that's like a quintessential definition of collectible. <laughs> because when there's only one, you know, <laughs> only one person can collect it. <laughs> and uh, that makes it very, very rare. So that in particular, and the fire starter is Is the,
1: is, so is the, is the jacket like hanging up on display? Oh, no.
2: She's got it sealed in plastic with, you know, moth and and <laughs> resistant. And oh, oh, oh no, it's up on a shelf. And once in a while, if I ask nicely, she'll she'll take it <laughs> down and show it to me. Oh, you know? I would love um, to see uh, a fact, picture would, of it. Uh, she's she's very serious about her collection. She has the four. Well, she sold them, but she has the four original Richard Bachman paperbacks um, as the year they were published when they just had Bachman on them. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were sealed in plastic and, and she'd had them for years. And, and I was teaching a course on Stephen King that I, at university of New Haven, the new gothic horror of Stephen King. And I said, you know, let me take the books to school. Let me do a show and tell. And show the kids this really cool collectible, these rare King paperbacks. She said no. She, said, oh, no. <laughs> she wouldn't even let me take them out of the plastic. <laughs> you know, so so she's a she's a uh, she was a serious collector, but has kind of scaled back in recent years. But, yeah, yeah.
0: I have a contingency plan if my house ever catches on fire. Exactly how I'm going to get my my most prized bookshelf out of the house <laughs> at risk of my life.
2: <laughs> I hear you. Alright, uh,
1: let's talk about some of your books uh, in a little more detail. You wrote the we talked about the complete Stephen King encyclopedia. It took you five years. What was the experience like of putting that book together?
2: I had one assistant. My dearly departed mom, as I mentioned, who's a was a voracious reader. Very, very smart, but she came from a somewhat patriarchal Italian family, and she could have been a nurse or a doctor, but Back in the day, girls graduated high school and then got a job and then got married. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there there were many, many exceptions of girls being able to go to college, but my mom wasn't able to. However, she was intellectually uh, superior. So she, she always followed my career. She was my biggest fan. And when I came up with the idea of the King book, she loved King. And so I said, the only problem is, you know, I wanna do it like I did the Mayberry book. And the Mayberry book is basically the people, places, and things of everything in all 249 episodes of the Andy Griffith Show. So if Otis mentions something, a still, or a bottle, or a brand, or a recipe in one episode, it got an entry in the thing section for that episode. So I told my mother, I said, I want to do the same thing with King. Little realizing what I was actually wanting to do. And so after I started it, and I started with Carrie, and I just started taking notes, rereading the book, and every time a person, place, or thing appeared, making a note and jotting it down, and then I figured I'd go back and write the entries. Well, it just became insanely overwhelming. I I I was working full time for a family business at the time and I just couldn't. So mom was working as a clerk in a stationery store in Old Sabre, Connecticut. And her boss was rarely there. And my mother ran the store and did very, very well with it and so forth. But she had a lot of downtime. And I know a lot of people bring books to read when they have nothing to do but bring a cash register or whatever. So mom, <laughs> she bought a stack of legal pads from her very own stationery store. And she began taking notes on every work that I gave her from King. And, you know, to this day, I'm looking, I can see the filing cabinet in my, in my apartment and the bottom two drawers are filled with those notated legal pads, from which I took all the information she had compiled and wrote plain text entries and then ran them through a processor to alphabetize and so forth. So it was huge. And as I was doing that, I came to know more and more and more people in the King community. And before long, um, I was contributing to Castle Rock, the newsletter, updating readers about the progress of the encyclopedia, actually. I was also interviewing. I was taping them and transcribing them myself by listening to a cassette tape. And some of these interviews were 10,000 words long. So our, Richard Christian Matheson's was enormous, and it took forever to, to transcribe, but it, it was a great interview. And I interviewed his father, Richard Matheson. And well you can you know the book you can see the list of people who I got to mm-hmm. got to talk to and then other ideas started springing up. Well hey, what about if we index this? And what about if we add this? I told you the how king kills features. Yeah. And then people started volunteering. Chris <laughs> Chesley. Really, Chris Chesley who wrote with King when they were children, he offered a new short story he had written and my book is the only place it's been published. And when I get it, he also gave me a drawing of the particular building in New Mexico, the story, I think it's called The Mission. And he had actually sketched it, drawn it. So that's in there. And we had artists contributing. And we had, I mean, it just became, you talk about, you're asking about what kind of an experience it was. It was the most compelling, fascinating, and stressful creative experience (laughs) of my entire writing career. Because guys, I, I wouldn't give up. It sounds like you opened a Pandora's box of
1: literature and just had to deal with everything
2: that came out. It was beyond daunting, beyond daunting, particularly when I would get to a book like uh, Skeleton Crew and realize that I had to take notes on every story in the people, places and things format. And Night Shift, and four uh, different seasons, and four past midnight, and every person, every place, everything. But, you know, I'm just so glad that I was young enough and had enough stamina <laughs> to be able to do it because guys, there's no way I'd do it now. I mean, I had COVID and now I've got long COVID mm. and it's, I'm exhausted oh all God. the time. <laughs> well, I
0: have, I have to congratulate you. No one has ever made us cry on our own podcast yeah. until today.
2: <laughs> Man,
1: the, the, talking about the, the, the you, filing, filing cabinet, cabinet that, oh my gosh. that hit me real hard. That's so amazing <laughs> that you still have that. That's got to be such a grateful them to have. I,
2: I still look at them i still pull open oh. the drawer and just pull out a pad you know and say oh look this is mom's christine legal pad and i flip through it and in her handwriting you know there's all the people places and things of christine yeah it, w- it was quite something uh, and in fact i'm gonna give one or two of these pads to my siblings Oh. Um. Just kind of, yeah, yeah, to that's commemorate so mom because now she's gone a year. You know, we, we grieved for a year, and we still are grieving. Mm-hmm. But now there's more activity, quote unquote, in terms of like talking about her and remembering things, and you know how it is. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm thinking I may give a pat or two to each of my sibs, and and they'll just that's they knew that that's how it happened but none of them have ever seen her stack of notes, uh, <laughs> you know? So I think it'll mean a lot. I hope it will anyway, you know? Yeah. Another one of your books
1: that I, I really wanted to talk about was The Lost Work of Stephen King. Please tell me about what what may what is A Lost Work of Stephen King?
2: A Lost Work of Stephen King is anything that is not part of, that is not a novel or a short story collection. Because not everything that ends up on the New York Times bestseller list is everything King has published. And so as I was doing the research, you know, and I, and I had the list, the master list of all the, his short stories, and then I discovered that he wrote such and such, and it only appeared in such and such. And I'm saying, wait a minute, it wasn't collected? Well, i got to put that over here then. i got to start another list. And then I'd find that he did nonfiction essays. And I said, oh, wait a minute, what's this? My little serrated security blanket by Stephen King. What, what is that? And it turns out to be a review, a comical review, that Steve wrote for Outside Magazine about an ice axe. And he he wrote it ostensibly as a review of the product for people who were into rock climbing and ice climbing. That's wild. But of course, knowing it's King, Of course, he had to figure out just how deep it would go into a skull. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm saying to myself, wow, King fans would love this stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't get rights to to republish any of the lost works that I cover in the book. I cover about 75 pieces because we just had no budget, you know, and, and who knows if they'd even want them to license the rights. but. But the point is, I covered the story. For each chapter, I gave a likelihood of a fan being able to actually find it. King reviewed, did book reviews for the New York Times Book Review. And they were never mainstream published other than the Sunday that it, they appeared. But they contained classic King writing. Mm-hmm. And so I would often refer fans to libraries. I said, go to a library and give the librarian this date. And the title of the piece, and when she brings you the microfiche or whatever, print out photocopies, and now you've got a King essay (laughs) that you would never have been able to see. And so we even did that with, I have a copy of all his college writings, King's Garbage Truck. He wrote a column when he was in college for the University of Maine called King's Garbage Truck, and basically there's dozens and dozens of essays published weekly that included movie reviews, comments on culture, talk about cops, about violence, about Vietnam. And so I wrote about that. And, and Slade, he wrote a five-piece comical essay, a Western, that really kind of, to me, you know, suggests future Dark Tower kind of stuff. Mm. Even though it's <laughs> a comedy and it's, you know, but, but it's the only work he ever wrote that has the appearance of a hot air balloon. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, a hot air balloon crashes into a barn on fire and kills Polly Peachtree, one, st- <laughs> one of the main characters of Slade. Um, so, you know, they, <laughs> And so I told, I told fans about that, and basically I had like 75 pieces that some were completely inaccessible but were fun to read about, and some, with a little bit of digging could be found. So that, that was the overall approach of The Lost Work of Stephen King. We are working on volume two. A lot of things that have been, that King has published, in fact, he did two major pieces for the New York Times Book Review. One was a, a review of a biography of Raymond Carver, the American short story writer. I'm a big fan of, of his. Also, The Collected Carver, King wrote two major pieces for the Times Book Review about Carver, who he says has influenced him, and I'm talking about those, and that's accessible stuff too. So I kind of saw it as my goal to turn readers on to stuff that isn't available at Barnes & Noble, that they could find and read, because King fans, most of the time, they want more King. And to (laughs) read him in the context of you know, a nonfiction essay about this, or a movie review of movies they've seen, or, what uh, you know, his thoughts on the Vietnam War. I mean, this is all stuff that appeals to serious fans, and so that was the goal of the book.
1: I can only imagine just the lengths at which you had to go to, to find some of these. It's so cool. You're still, are you still working on Stephen King, American Master?
2: No, Stephen King, American Master, came out a, a year ago, and we I am working on an expanded edition of that book to as a uh, signed limited edition with the Overlook Connection Press. I'm going to add ah, okay, uh, nice. a, a, yeah a few more chapters, a f- couple interviews, a few more essays. I am working on that. Um, I am currently focused on finishing... Crystal Palace which is the novel I'm co-writing with a student of mine Rachel we've been working on it for years it takes place in two timelines 1851 and 2015 and there are two main female characters Amelia and Cecilia and it has a reincarnation plotline and it's just each chapter alternates from 1851 to 2015 and it's been in, it was influenced by Dickens and Charlotte Bronte and turns out that we're not actually mimicking their style, but you can sense in the voice of our writing that they've been. the book has been influenced by Dickens and Bronte. So we think it's going to be a success because it's just a terrific read. And then, of course, I have the uh, Frank Sinatra book due on September 1st, uh, which I'm somewhat behind on because of the after effects of COVID. But I'm working on that. And uh, and again, the finalizing the short story collection called The Overnight Hours, which is coming out uh, in a couple months. So yeah, keep them busy.
0: Yeah, that's a lot to look forward to. Yeah,
2: no
1: kidding. Before <laughs> we, we wrap things up, we're at the end of our time. Is there anything else you'd like to add uh, to our listeners? Anything you haven't had the chance to say?
2: Basically, what I would always tell students is that if you want to write, write. By the way, can I say ass? You sure yeah, can. Yeah, I can say whatever you want. Okay, because there's a formula, and I think a sports writer came up with it. Writing equals ass plus chair. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so I would, all, I always encourage my students, I would say, you know, listen, you want to write, write. Don't think about... Who's going to buy the publishers, and and or is that you need an agent, or who's going to want to buy it, or what the cover is going to look like? Don't think about any of that. Simply sit down and write, because you cannot rewrite until you write. Do not find the notion of writing something so daunting that you just freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has always kind of inspired, and and then you know what I do, I tell them the Beatles story, (laughs) um, because I was working on Beatles books when I was teaching, and I would say to them, just remember something. You guys, you're 17, 18, 19, right? Paul McCartney was finished with the Beatles when he was 26. He hadn't even turned 30, and he changed the world, (laughs) as did John George and Ringo. I said, if they can do it, they're inspired, they were inspired, they worked hard, they got rejected, they slummed it, they, they had no money, and yet they believed in their art. I said, so. I, that, that's what I would always tell people, particularly aspiring writers and artists of all types, do it. Mm-hmm. And then worry about what you're going to do, with. And, the, and frankly, aspiring writers, musicians, painters, etc., in this day and age, with the internet... And self-publishing and Amazon, Kindle, DP, your work can find an audience much simpler than when I was starting out in the 80s. So that's basically my point, just a bit of inspiration to not give up and continue. And, you know, anytime time when I sold my first novel, it was to Random House in 2005. It's called Dialogues and got a really, really big advance for it. This was after like 50 books. And my agent, who yeah, agents are, they can be a tad cynical. You know, <laughs> he, said, he said to me, Wow, you're a 30 year overnight success. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, Yeah, I guess so, huh? <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and so basically that, that would be my message, which is never give up, keep doing it, you know? Because if you don't do something you set your mind to, in a year, you still will not have done it. Right. If you set your mind to doing something, in a year you'll have something. It may be awful. And I tell the story about how, <laughs> King, how King got so many rejections that he had to put a railroad spike in the wooden beam of his apartment with, that he shared with his brother in Durham, Maine. And every time a short story got rejected, he would spike the rejection s- slip onto this spike, and it started as a nail. And then he got so many rejections that he ended up replacing it with a big, thick <laughs> spike to have room. And I said, and that is Stephen King. Mm-hmm. So clearly, you know, it's, if, you, if, if you want a, an artist, a career in the arts, you've got to work for it and never give up. Never take no for an answer. So that would be my my final word, I guess.
1: <laughs> awesome. Once again, thank you to our wonderful guest, Stephen Spignesi, for taking the time to talk with us. If you're looking to get your hands on any of Stephen's books, they are available on Amazon. For Stephen Spignessi and C.M. Alexander, this is Joshua Kahn reminding you, if you want to write, write.
0: Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our interview with Stephen Spignessi. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more of Stephen, you can find him at stephenspignessi.weebly.com. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.